Hello and thanks for streaming this episode from ACF Church. Our hope is that this word would encourage you to walk closer with God and with your local church. We hope you consider partnering in the work God's doing here by joining a life group, serving, and giving. If you'd like to give financially to the mission of ACF Church, you can do so safely on our website at acfak.org or by texting the amount to 907-341-4213. Now prepare your hearts to hear God's word. sacrifice for the freedoms that we get to experience today. And personally, I, I remember my good friend David Hart, who was killed in, a, in Iraq in 2008. And because of their sacrifice, we're able to have church this morning in a high school in Eagle River, Alaska. And we get to experience the freedoms that we do. And so, for those of you guys who personally have lost loved ones, friends, and family members, we, we remember with you and we want to honor, again, those men and women and, and just thank them for their ultimate sacrifice that they gave. So my name is Josh, and I am one of the pastors here at ACF. And if you're a guest of ours this morning, we just want to say welcome. We're so just honored that you would come and spend some time with us on a Sunday morning. If you're joining in online, we want to say welcome. We're glad that you guys are joining us this morning. Uh, if it's your first time today, or maybe you just haven't been around for a couple of weeks, uh, we've been in the middle of a series called God Problems, and we've been asking you guys to send us, to text us in your God Problems. And we've been talking about issues and, and questions that people have about God, or about the church, or about the Bible, or just about Christianity in general, and it's been an awesome series. And today we're wrapping up this series and we're wrapping it up with a question um, that's probably one of the most popular questions to come in. Um, it's a fairly easy one. Um, the question of how can God be good and there's suffering in the world? Really easy question to talk about this morning. I have 35 minutes just to knock that one out of the park, right? A question that people have been asking for thousands of years. Probably one of the biggest stumbling blocks for people as they approach God is going, wait a second, how can God be good, how can he be powerful, and yet there's evil in this world? A very small little question. Uh, I, I, we got dozens and dozens of these questions coming in. I picked one just to read out loud today that came in, and it is this. Due to my line of work, I've witnessed so much violence heartlessness, and death. If there is a God, why would he allow such pain and suffering? I think this is a question that probably if we're all honest with ourselves, all of us in this room have wrestled with once or twice before. I'm sure most of us know people who, 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 who won't come to God because of this question. And it feels like an 
an appropriate question to be wrestling with over Memorial Day weekend. And so this morning, we're going we're gonna to dive into this. And I'm going to let you guys know up front, I'm going to kind of tackle this question on two fronts. First is the philosophical way, the philosophical reason. Like, how can this be? We'll talk about that for a moment. And then we're going to jump into the much more important issue, and that's the personal reason. What does this look like for me? What does this look like with the pain and the suffering that I am experiencing in this world? Now, I, I honestly, just so you guys know, I get geeked out over, like, the philosophical stuff. I love reading that. I love diving into that. I love, you know, studying it and listening to podcasts and all sorts of stuff. And so I could spend all morning on this. And there's a lot that we're not going to talk about and not going to cover. But I want to talk about this for just a moment in this sense. Because this is a real popular question. And if I asked for a show of hands, I'm sure almost everybody in here would raise their hand. If I would say, who in here has ever stumbled on this before? Where this has been a stumbling block for you or someone you know, and you're like, man, I don't really know the answer to this one. This one is kind of hard, and look over there. Hey, you know, let's not talk about this. But this is an important subject to talk about. And as Christians, we don't have to bury our head in the sand to this question. And so this morning I want to talk about this because I remember I've had many, many conversations that started this way. I've had many conversations that started with this question. How can God be good? How can he be powerful? And how can there be evil in the world? Like, doesn't evil prove that God doesn't exist? There's just too much evil in the world. I remember several years ago having a conversation with a group of high school students. In fact, a couple of them had brought in a friend to church, and they introduced him to me, and they're like, this is our friend, he's an atheist. I'm like, oh, okay, back up. Well, you don't, you, you don't need to introduce him that way at church. Like, it's okay. How about just introduce me to your friend? And, and so I said, it's great to meet you. And he's like, hey, I got some questions for you. And I said, sure, shoot. And this was it. Doesn't evil prove that God doesn't exist? Because if God existed, there wouldn't be all this evil in the world. And so we started down this road of a conversation, and I want to I have this conversation with you guys today. And so I looked at this young man, and I said, look, there, that's an interesting question you have. And, and the thing that we do so often is when we ask these kinds of questions, this one or ones like it, is, is we kind of we throw the question out there, but we don't really think about the implications of the question we're asking. We don't think about the road that the assumptions we may go down, because when we ask these types of questions, we, we put a lot of assumptions within the question itself. And so I was explaining that to him. I said, well, you're asking this question. There's a lot of things you're assuming within that question. He says, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, you're saying there's evil in the world, so you're agreeing that there's evil. And he said, oh, yeah, of course there's evil. Everybody knows that there's evil. I said, okay. I said, if there's evil in the world, then there has to be good in the world too, right? Like there has to be something that you're calling evil. So if you're calling something evil, then we also have to be able to call things good. He says, yeah, well, of course there's good in the world. Everybody can see that there's good in the world. I said, okay, great. I said, here's the deal. If there's good in the world, then there must be moral law. There must be a moral law that we filter our experiences through to determine whether they are good or whether they are evil. And, and he kind of sat there and kind of processed that for a moment. And he said, okay, yeah, sure, I'll give you that there's a moral law. Like, okay. Now, it, it can be subjective. It can, you know, it can be different for people. But there's a moral law, okay. 
And I said, okay, well, if there's a moral law, there has to be a moral law giver. And he kind of was like, whoa, I, I, I see where you're going with this. Whoa, hold on. And this is where he wanted to exit the train, right? I'll give you that there's a moral law, but there doesn't have to be a moral law giver. I see where you're going. You're going to say, oh, the moral law giver, then there's, there's God, and that's who, where moral laws come from, and God doesn't exist. Therefore, no, I don't believe that there's a moral law giver. Okay, let's talk about that for a minute. If there's no moral law giver, then what sets morality? Where does moral law come from? And he sat there and he thought about it for a minute. And he's like, well, well like it's, it's, it's obvious. Like we can see and we can know what is right and what is wrong. We can see and what we can know what is evil and what is good. And, and at the end of the day, I just, I just know. It's, it's like a feeling or, you know, that I have. And I said, okay, great. So what you're saying is that your feelings and your opinion determine what is right and wrong. He's like, yeah, I think so. I said, I don't care about your opinion. And I said, I have an opinion too. And, and this morning as I'm talking to you guys, I have a very strong opinion about some morality that's very unpopular. And that opinion is this. Pineapple absolutely belongs on pizza. All right? That is more. Yes. Can I get an amen to that? I don't care what your morality is, right? It's, it's scripture. It's in the book of First Papa John's. Read it. Pineapple belongs on pizza. Right? And, and, but here's the deal. Like, if that's where our morality comes from is just our opinion, I don't care about your opinion. So why do I have to adhere to your morality? And, and I said this to the young man. He's like, oh, okay. He said, well, Society. Society determines what is right and what is wrong. Society determines morality. And if we work together as a society for the greater good, then we're going to be doing good and not evil. And I said, okay, whose society? Because there's a lot of societies out there. And I love this. Dr. Ravi Zacharias says this. He says, in some societies, they love their neighbors. In other societies, they eat them. Which one do you want to live in? Right? And, and both are based on feelings. Both are based on, hey, we feel it's a good idea to eat our neighbors. And others say, no, it's a good idea to love our neighbors. And I said, what's society? Because in our society, we do some things that we're working really hard. And yeah, we have a long ways to come, or a long ways to go, but we've come a long ways. Like, like women's rights and, and treating people with equality, like that's a big deal. But in other societies today, right now, Women are property, and they're owned either by their fathers or their husbands. And they don't have rights. But society says that's okay, and so is that wrong? And he's like, no. Like, he knew the answer he had to give. Like, well, if it's their society, I guess not. And I said, no, see, that's ridiculous. See, if there's a moral law giver, that changes everything. And I said, and if society determines morality, then we have no right today to go and look into our own history and call things wrong. Like, we, we don't have the right to go back into history and say, oh, slavery was wrong, because that's what society deemed was okay at the time. But if there's a moral law giver, we can look back in our history and go, that was absolutely wrong. It doesn't matter what society says at the time. See, society says things are okay all the time that are wrong, and are wrong all the time that are okay. We can't determine on just society. You see, if there's, if there's evil in the world, there has to be good. 
If there's good in the world, there has to be a moral law. And if there's a moral law, there has to be a moral law giver. And, and, and even to take it to the next step, people argue and they say things like, yeah, that, that, that there's evil in the world and that's a problem. Evil is a problem. And the thing is, people that make that statement, they're, they're talking either, they're talking about a person or they're talking about themselves. It's, it, that statement is said by a person, about a person, right? Evil is a problem. Evil is bad. That statement is made by a person, about a person. And what they are saying, again, when you look at the statement, when you look at the question, when you, when you start to examine what you are saying is people have value and that's why it's wrong. Evil is wrong. Why? Because people have value. And if there's a moral law giver, as Christians, we say, yes, there is a moral law giver, and that is God, and people do have value. And the reason they have value is because we're made in the image of God. That is our intrinsic value. That is where the value of humanity comes from, is that we've been made in the image of God. Imagio Dei. In the image of God. And that's where our value comes from. And so by saying that evil is a problem, you're saying that people have value. But the problem is, if there's no moral law giver, there's no moral laws. If there's no moral laws, there's no good. If there's no good, there is no evil. And people don't have value. And what happens in the world is just what happens. See, you need it's funny, as you say that evil proves there's no God, you need God to be able to prove that evil exists. A writer named Frank Turk, he, he says it's called stealing from God, that, that people who don't believe in God actually have to steal qualities from God to prove that God doesn't exist. Because if you go down the road of like, no, evil proves there's no God, really what you're proving at the same time is there actually is no evil. And that's the road you have to go on. And, and that's the road, at least, at least some pretty famous atheists, they're, they're at least willing to admit that. A lot of people like to get off the train before it gets to this place, but Richard Dawkins has a saying, a very famous uh, a book he wrote called The God Delusion. And in The God Delusion, he has, this, he has this quote. He says, In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical force and genetic replication... Some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe, as we observe, has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is. It dances to its own music. You see, the, the issue of evil is not just a problem for Christians. It's a problem for all religions in the world. And they all answer that question differently. But it's also a problem for people to, who don't believe in God at all. Because if there is no God, there's no moral law. So we actually have no evil to begin with. And all we have is pitless indifference. All we have is DNA doing its thing. See, what we have is, is nature, right? Like, no one watches the Discovery Channel and sees, like, the lion going after the baby gazelle and then going, ah, murderer! Baby killer! No, we go, that's a lion. That's sad for that little gazelle, but at least the baby cubs are going to live. Right? Because why? Because animals don't have intrinsic 
value. They weren't created in the image of God. But we believe that people do. But if there is no God, then people don't have intrinsic value. And that's what Richard Dawkins gets to. That's, that's the end of the road for him. And so abandoning your faith because you see evil in the world doesn't lead you to a better place. It actually leads you to a more depressing place. None of this matters. It's just DNA doing its thing. It is completely, completely indifferent. Okay, Josh, you say, but okay, I believe in God. Maybe there is a God, but I can't believe that he's all good because what about the suffering? What about all the suffering that we see in this world? How can that be? How can God be all good, all powerful, and in suffering and evil still exist? Well, Dr. Zacharias, he explains it this way. He says, what you're stating or what you're asking is a trilemma question. How can God be good? How can he be powerful? And evil exists. It's a trilemma question, he says. You see, but the problem with this question is God is more than just all-powerful, and he's more than just all-good. God is also completely just, 100% just, as if there's no mercy in him whatsoever. God is also merciful, 100% merciful, as if there's no justice in him whatsoever. See, God is not 50% just and 50% mercy. He's 100% of each. God is also all-knowing, omniscient, Knowing all, all the knowledge there is to know in the known universe and the unknown universe, God has all knowledge. God is also eternal, never having a beginning, never going to have an end. And since the beginning of human history, he's been writing a story, a beautiful, redemptive story. And we are part of the fabrics of that story. But he has a knowledge and an understanding, and he's always been, and he knows the ending. You see, God is not just all-powerful and all-loving. All he is so much more than just that. You see, for my, and how does this work out personally? See, in my life, in my own life, see, I never would have chosen. I never would have chosen that in fourth grade, my good friend Shelly get brain tumors. See, I never would have chosen as a child to bear the weight of praying for Shelly, but in such a bad way that I was afraid that if I forget to pray for her one night, she would die, that I was the one keeping Shelly alive with my prayers. I never would have chosen to be woken up my sophomore year of high school by my pastor on the phone telling me that Shelly died that night and me frantically trying to remember if it was my fault if I fell asleep without praying for Shelly. See, I never would have chosen in high school to be relentlessly bullied. Not just high school, but all through junior high and high school to be relentlessly bullied in my school. I, I never would have chosen to wrestle with thoughts of suicide. I never would have chosen that weeks after burying Shelly, I had to bury my other friend, Bryce, who ended up killing himself because he couldn't take his parents' divorce. In my own life, I, I never would have chosen to have such a rocky start to my marriage that several years after we're married, my wife and I were staring down this road that almost led us to divorce I never would have chosen for my wife and I to walk through a miscarriage. The pain of that, remember crying ourselves to sleep, wondering what had happened. I never would have chosen for myself, for my wife, 
to battle the battles and the darkness of depression, at times locking herself in a closet and me wondering if she's hurting herself in there. See, I never would have chosen any of these things. And you can take any one of those, and in that moment, by itself, isolated, you can say, God, where were you? God, you were not here. God, you are not with me. You might be real, but you're not good, because look at this isolated moment. Look at this isolated event. But when you step back from that moment, and you recognize that God's ways are higher than our ways, and you know that he's eternal, and you know that he's good, and you know that he's just, and you know that he's powerful, and you know that he's merciful, you can take a step back from those moments, and you can look, and I cannot look at my life and say, God, you are not there. As I look at my life entirely, the only thing I can say is, God, you have been with me the entire time. And sure, there were moments where I didn't see it and I didn't feel it, but now when I can take a step back, I can look at it and see, God, you were there. You see, what we need to do is let our lives play out. See, I believe one day we will stand before God and we are going to be able to look at the entirety of our own story. And when we stand before God, we're going to look and go, wow, God, you were so involved throughout this whole thing. And yeah, maybe in this moment I didn't feel you, in that moment I didn't feel you, but now I take a step back and I can see that you were always there. See, the truth of the matter is, how can God allow suffering while it is a philosophical question? Does God allow it? Does he cause it? Yes. <laughs> you know, it, what is going on? I don't know. I don't have the exact answer for you this morning. But the thing is, the answer doesn't matter. That answer, that answer is not going to bring you peace. God is going to bring you peace. Not the answer to some philosophical question. Because this question is more than philosophical. It's personal. And when you're asking these questions, you're probably personally wrestling through something. And so there's, there's this group of people in Scripture that were personally going through major suffering. They are going through major evil in their life. These people were being completely persecuted. I mean, and things like they were being fed to lions in the Roman Colosseums. They were being crucified on crosses for their faith. They were being doused in oil and lit on fire and used as garden lanterns for the emperor's parties. They were under severe persecution, and they were going to continue to go through severe persecution. And Peter writes them a letter. Peter writes a letter to these people who are going through severe persecution. And I want to read some of what Peter writes. It's in 1 Peter chapter 1. Starting in verse 2, it's, it's a chunk of scripture, so I'm going to ask you to hang out with me here for just a minute as I read through this. And this is what Peter writes to these people who have experienced major persecution. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to, uh, to a living hope through a resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith uh, for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 
In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, in things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Things into which angels long to look. You see, Peter, I think, is telling these readers, these people, he's telling them three things to do when they're walking through suffering here. I want to talk about these three things with you this morning. In case you might be walking through suffering, you know someone that's walking through suffering. See, the first thing Peter does is he tells them, look to the cross. Look to the cross. See, Peter compares the trials that they're going through, he compares them to walking through a fire or walking through a furnace. And I love this, as, as, you, as you start to read scriptures and you start to understand how it ties together, there's this beautiful passage in Isaiah where God makes a promise to, the, to his people. God makes a promise to his people, and this is the promise that he makes. Fear not, I have redeemed you. When you pass through the waters, I will be there. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. I love this promise of God. When you pass through the waters, I'm going to be with you. And when you pass through the fire, I'm going to be there with you. But here's the thing about this promise that God makes. Sometimes I think we can mishear it. Sometimes I think we hear it and what we hear is, fear not. If you pass through the waters, I will be there. If you pass through the fire, you will not be burned. But that's not what he's saying. And, and some of us even believe this, and maybe we've been taught this before, but the promise goes like this, as God's children, because you've said yes to Jesus, you will not pass through the waters, and you will not go through the fire. Sometimes we believe that in our heart, but what is this promise? This actually promises us two things. First, it promises that God will be with us, but before that, it promises that when you go through the waters, when you go through the fire, that I will be there with you. And we see that quite literally with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Three men get thrown into the furnace, and yet there's another one there with them. You see, 
God wanted us to understand something. He's, he doesn't just want to be with us, right? Like, have you ever been with someone when they're, like, throwing up and you're like, I'm sorry, this sucks, I'm glad it's not me, right? God doesn't want us to think of him that way, like, I'm there, what you're going through, it sucks, but I'm glad it's not me. No, God wants us to see something. This is why Peter tells them, hey, the thing you're going through is like going through a fire, But what he wants them to remember when we say look to the cross, you see what we understand is that Jesus came to this earth and we believe that we filter everything in scripture and even everything in our lives, that we filter it through the cross. We filter it through the life of Jesus and that the epitome, the apex of Christ's life was the cross and then the resurrection. And all of a sudden when you start filtering things through the cross, what we see is God himself When the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that God himself came to this earth and took on pain and suffering. But he chose it for himself because of love. And what we need to understand is the pain and suffering that Christ went through is far greater than any pain or suffering that any single human has ever experienced in human history. In other words, there's nothing that you have experienced that Christ did not Because his pain and suffering was so much more than the beatings and the whips he took on his back. His pain and suffering was so much more than just the crown of thorns that was shoved on his head. The pain and suffering was so much more than having nails driven through his hands and his feet and being hung on a cross. The pain and suffering experience was so much more than a spear being shoved into his side. You see, Scripture tells us that the one who knew no sin became sin. That was the greatest pain and suffering that anyone could ever experience, becoming the very sin of all humanity. Your sin and my sin. That he willingly walked into that. That Scripture tells us that this was the path that he chose for the joy set before him. That this was a joy for him to do this. Why? Because he didn't want to be separate from us anymore. And that when he says, I walk through the fire with you, he knows what the fire is all about. Why does God allow evil in this world? When you filter that question through the cross, the answer, the cross does not answer that question, why? The, The cross does not tell us what the answer to the question is. Okay, The cross cannot tell you what the answer to that question is on a micro level. In other words, why are you going through the suffering that you're going through? Well, the cross can't tell you what the answer to that question is, but the cross can tell you what the answer to that question is not. And the answer to the question is not because I don't love you. You see, when we hold it up to the cross, the answer to the question is why pain and suffering? The answer to that question is not because I don't care, because I'm indifferent. No, because of the cross, we can know that he absolutely loves us and he absolutely cares. Scripture tells us this is how we know God loves us, because he died for us when we were sinners. So why pain and suffering? I don't know, I don't have all the answers, but the answer to the question is not because God does not care. And this is what Peter is trying to get the believers to remember. Look to the cross. The second thing that Peter tells this church that's going through intense suffering, he says, look to the hope. Look to the hope. Listen to this. He has caused us 
to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. What's he saying right here? Look to hope. Peter says, look to hope. And not just any hope. Peter says, look to the living hope. So you can't walk through the fires without living hope and, and walk through it with joy unexplainable that Peter talks about. How do you have that when you walk through the fire? It is through the living hope. What is the living hope? The living hope is an inheritance. Well, what is that inheritance? The inheritance is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That we receive an inheritance, but why to receive it? Because Jesus Christ rose again from the dead. So what does that mean? This resurrection shows us what the inheritance will be. See, Peter writes, he says, it's a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This inheritance is a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See, when Jesus rose from the dead, really two things happened. One, immediately, that we can have salvation and forgiveness from our sins and we can be reconciled with God. But that there's still another restoration coming. There's still this like other salvation coming at the end of times. You see, our final destination when this is all said and done is not to some city in the clouds, right? It's not Star Wars. It's not up there in the sky, whatever far side image you have of heaven, whatever cartoon you see of playing a harp on the clouds. That is not what we have to look forward to. The scripture says that God is going to make his dwelling place here on earth with us and everything will be restored. See, it says right here that our, that our inheritance is revealed to us through the resurrection, that the resurrection actually shows us what this inheritance is going to be. So what does the resurrection show us? The resurrection shows us that all pain, all suffering, all evil, that death was undone. That the resurrection, the restoration that we have, the hope that we have, this living hope, is that all the evil done to us and all the pain and all the suffering, that it is undone. And what does that look like? What does that mean? You see, I used to think and I used to understand like, oh, when the Bible says that God's going to wipe away every tear and there's going to be no more pain and no more suffering, I used to think what that meant was I'm just not going to care anymore about what was done to me. Like, oh, these, these evils that were done to me, I'm just going to forget about them. I'm just not going to care about them anymore. And there'll be no more going forward. No, not, that's not what the resurrection is. The resurrection is the undoing of all pain and all suffering and all evil and death. See, there's a big difference, and it doesn't mean that we forget it, because I can guarantee you Christ does not forget the cross. It doesn't mean we don't care about it. It's not that Christ didn't, does not care about the cross anymore, but we read in Romans that death is literally swallowed up. Oh, death, where is your sting? It gets swallowed up in victory. And this image of it being swallowed up in victory is that everything that it threw at you becomes undone. That yes, it is still part of your story. No, it does not go away. But it leads you to a place of glory. And it leads you to a place of worship. And it leads you to a place of gratitude in your life where you go, Oh my word, I cannot believe 
that this is what I was so worried about. Peter's like, hey, yeah, you're going to go through a little trial during this time. Eh, don't worry about it. It's all going to be undone. It's this living hope that we have to look forward to, this inheritance where everything is made right, it's redeemed, it's restored. It's this beautiful picture. And this is the very thing. This is the very thing that the first century church, that the early church members, this was their hope. This is why they could walk into a Colosseum and be devoured by a lion because this was the hope that they had. It was this hope of this inheritance of the evil being done to them being undone one day. So look. Look to the hope. And finally, the, the last thing we see in here is look to the gospel. Look to the gospel. Peter writes, In the things that you have now, that now have been announced to you, through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. It's a really interesting way to end that, right? You've been preached this good news, and these, this good news, this is the thing that angels long to look into. Right? The good news, the gospel, like, right? That's what angels long to look into? That quite literally, angels long to look into those moments. Right when you share the gospel with your neighbors, when you share the gospel with your coworkers, when you share the gospel with your family, when we together share the gospel with our community, the angels long to look into this because they get it and they understand it. They've seen it played out. This good news, what is this good news? This good news is starts first with the fact that we are all sinners. And that we are broken and that we are in our mess and we are in our sin. And there's nothing that we can do to get rid of it. There's nothing we can do to make it right. And so the, the statement or the question, why do, why do bad things happen to good people? It's, it's the wrong statement to make. Because there are no good people. Scripture tells us that there's no one good, not one and you say Josh no 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 I'm good I'm a good person I do good things doing a few good deeds does not account for the sin in our life and a lot of people struggle with this and this is an unpopular thing to say I get it we don't want to think of ourselves as sinners but scripture is clear that no good bad things do not happen to good people because there is no one good that we are broken and that we are sinful. But the fact of the matter is, bad things happen to a good person one time. One time. That was the cross. See, Jesus knew no sin. And again, he was compelled for the joy set before him to walk to the cross, to endure all of that. Why? So we did not have to. So we did not have to try to figure out a way to pay for our sin. So we did not have to try to figure out a way to work our way to God because it wasn't, it wasn't doable. It's not doable. And so Christ walked into that willingly, taking that upon himself. And so the question that we need to ask is not why do bad things happen to good people. The real question is why do good things happen to bad people? Why would Jesus do this on our behalf? Why? 
again is because of the love that he has for us. And so why is there suffering in your life? I, I don't know. But I do know that Christ has walked through the fire with you. And he's with you today walking through the fire. See, Romans, Romans 8 tells us this. It says that we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. That yes, you know what? Does God cause these things to happen? Does he allow these things to happen? I don't know, but I do know this, that he's working all things out for good. That all things will be restored. All things will be redeemed. All things will be made new for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who are in Christ Jesus. See, we will never see ourselves in need of a Savior if we don't see the sin in our lives. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, he's working all of that out. He's in the fire with you today. And so if you're walking through pain right now, if you're walking through suffering, if there's evil being done to you, I just want to encourage you to do as Peter instructed the first century church to do, to look to the cross, to look to the hope, and to look to the gospel because Jesus is with you in it. Let's pray. Thank you so much, God, that we do not worship a God who is indifferent. We do not worship a God who does not care. We do not worship a God who does not understand what we're going through, but has experienced all of our pain and all of our suffering. And he knows and he understands and he loves us and he chose it for himself so that we can be in relation with him, so that we can have an inheritance, so we can have a living hope of everything one day, all the sin and all the pain and evil and suffering to be undone, to be swallowed up in victory. God, I pray for those this morning that are walking through real pain and real suffering. And even this answer, it does not make that pain go away. It does not just make everything all of the sudden all better. But God, when we can experience the living hope deep within our soul, God, allow us to experience you walking with us and what that is and what that looks like and what that means. God, that even in the midst of our darkness, God, that we could find peace in you. We could experience your love in a, in a new and a deeper way than we ever have before. God, this world is not pitless indifference. It is not just random DNA dancing to its own tune. God, it is you who love us, who have value. And God, I know there are people this morning that are struggling, wrestling through that. Be with them in their wrestling, I pray. Jesus, give us all a vision of that living hope. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.